Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. I am Ewald Dorcus Kulborg. And I'm Sadia Patti. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, 33% general pondings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% hangover from the holidays ah <laughs> isn't that right everyone that's true it's hard to get started again or continue depending on whether you have taken a break <laughs> or not <laughs> or you got an intermeasure application on december 24th <laughs> something like that i think so <laughs> what about you guys i was in cape town but now oh. I'm in London. So uh, I ju came back judging from your Insta feed, it's not like you've been working hard lately. <laughs> <laughs> I was writing an article while I was out there. I'll have you know. But I, um, yeah, so it's it was two weeks of sunshine. Where are you? Where in the world are you, Joel? I am actually in New York, which is ironic because I've just started a new position working in, in London, which we'll probably get back to. But where in the world are you, Sadia? I'm in London, uh, in my office in London, and it's, you know, it's it's difficult to still accept that it's nighttime, but it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. I was going to invite someone over to the firm to, like, see the sunset, and then I was like, oh, wait, that's 4.30. I'm still working. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good time if, if, if Ramadan was right now. Like, people would like it, you know? Like the oh, end yeah. Of the day would be so, so easy. But no, 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 no. It's during the summer. Of course. <laughs> um, I yeah. So now we have quite good quality compared to last episode. So we're um, very excited. Apologies for that. It was a trial run, and hopefully we'll figure out the kinks for another time around when Joel is in town. Um, but you're not in town, Joel, even though you're allegedly in London, technically. Yes, I am employed in London. I am. Well, it's. I'm leaving. Academia, basically, it hasn't really hit me yet. I don't know what, they, what it will do to this podcast and how the how the dynamics will change when I can't be the the grumpy professor anymore. Uh, I, I'll be working in uh, essentially in private practice for something called Arbitration Chambers, which is in London and Hong Kong, and as of like a week ago, also in New York, which is uh, part of what I will be doing. Will uh, will be to help them open the New York office, but I will be based out of London. So hopefully. The three of us will be in the same room a lot more than we have recently. Wow. So your arbitral seat is London. Exactly. But my, <laughs> my activities, my hearings may take place elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and what so what's like the like format framework of your of this chambers? So it's um, it's not a barrister's chambers, it's an arbitration chambers. So they they essentially gather a, a large number of independent arbitrators under one roof in, in Hong Kong and in London and now then in New York. So I'll, I'll be working for the chambers, but primarily and maybe even exclusively with one arbitrator who's based here in, in New York, Gene Kalitsky. So I will be basically full-time tribunal secretary. Which is honestly your dream. You've been talking about that for a while. Yes, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you're going to keep academia hard 
into this conversation because you can take the boy out of the books, but you can't take the books out of the boy. <laughs> and we still need some, you know, academic input. So you'll still be our academic guy. No, I appreciate that. You could also just kick me out and hire an actual academic. You are not getting out of this. You've <laughs> the contract. We've talked about it, Joe. <laughs> the lifetime. What's the Scientology contract for like 8 billion years? You sign on. <laughs> exactly. oh, highly enforceable. Speaking of uh, academic input, I guess, no, that was not a good bridge. I, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> We have a sponsor, as our listeners will know, but we have some news regarding our sponsor, too. The sponsor is, of course, the Investment Arbitration Reporter, a.k.a. IA Reporter, uh, which is an online service used by the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies. For more than 10 years, IA Reporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. But here comes the news. Because as a New Year's gift to our listeners, IA Reporter have agreed to offer extended free trials to institutions that oh. are not currently subscribers. Please ask your library or knowledge manager to email subscribe at iareporter.com and mention the offer code arbitration station. Subscribe at iareporter.com offer code arbitration station. I just got the chills because we are entering podcast royalty by offering offer codes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> did we, we, did, we did that, though, with OUP, didn't we, at some point? Yeah, we did. did you're we... right. I also got the chills then as well. Maybe we should yeah. do something like, hey, if you respond this question correctly, you'll get 15% off or something. You know, we should try that next time. Take, like a newer quiz? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. So subscribe, guys. And we all do. What are we doing today, though? Yeah. So, what's yeah, so, what, uh, so we're going to start the year by talking about this weird case that um, that really was interesting when I saw that. It was Odette versus Mozambique, which raised the issue of uh, Rachini Tamperis and uh, temporal application of the BIT, basically. So we're going to talk about this. And uh, as a teaser, I can say there is a very uh, indirect connection to IA Reporter in that case, too, which we'll get back to. Oh, very interesting. So Jill will speak about this. Looking forward to that. Then we are going to talk about the interaction between commercial arbitration and investment arbitration, which is interesting because we do talk a lot about investment arbitration on this podcast. But this is a, a good one. We're going to see when... Um, a commercial award can give rise to an investment treaty arbitration claim. I'm not going to say too much more. And then, Brian, you're going to be telling us about what your New Year resolutions are about, right? My arbitration New Year's resolution. Ah, right. Okay. Eat less cake will not enter the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the New Year arbitration resolutions. So uh, exciting, exciting three topics. Yeah. Um, are there any events coming up for you guys? Jill? I have, I, I have pl plenty, but none, I think, that are of relevance to our listeners. Because I'm, I'm trying now to get my foot through the door in two different new arbitration communities in London and New York. So I'm going to probably be attending a lot of stuff in the upcoming weeks. But uh, nothing that is as major as Sadia's UN visit, I think. <laughs> yeah, major UN visit, the summit, yes. Um, <laughs> We're referring, of course, to Unsuitable Working Group 3, um, and they're having the next session in Vienna again. Um, and so that's going to start uh, on Monday 20th, uh, yes, that's it, 20th January. 
So I'll be there for a couple of days, not the entire week, but hopefully, I'm not going to promise anything, but hopefully we can bring you an interview from that visit in Vienna. Yeah, that would be great. You're staying home? Yeah, I mean, I've clearly been gone way too long, according to my Instagram feed. But um, I mean, there's there's some conferences next week. There's a conference next week here that I'm attending, and then I'm also joining a dinner for the Young ISDS um, group, which is actually... I don't know if it was, I don't want to say started, but um, Ketavan, who is based in Paris, and uh, Aaron Skogman, who was from Mannheimer in Malmo, he, um, they started a group of young ISDS lawyers that basically, if we're all at a conference in the same city, they'll just go out to dinner. So um, if you want to join that, let me know, because I know if you're practicing an investment arbitration and you consider yourself young, you identify as young, then... Um, and I'm sure they're looking to build up the group. Mm. Email uh, arbitrationstation at gmail, offer code Brian Kotick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll give you a tip. I'll that, give you. Uh, that dinner, actually, and, and thanks for mentioning it, Brian, I, I forgot to talk about it. It is linked with the IFILA conference, of course, right? Which is yes. happening on the 30th of January. And Meg Kinner is coming to speak at that conference. Is uh, it Meg or is it Greg? Greg. Uh, or we'll stop this now. People will keep saying Greg, and I hope no one will make that joke during the conference. Or I dare you to do it. I dare the people who are listening to this podcast to make that joke. Um, but yeah, so Greg Meg is coming. Yeah, she's the <laughs> keynote. Meg is in Meg is in London uh, that week, so it's going to be exciting. If you're in London, you should go to that. If you like conferences, um, yeah. So that is it. I, we should we should do uh, ratione temporis jurisdiction. Yes, let's start it. Before jumping into this interesting case against Mozambique, let's start with the basics when it comes to ratione temporis, which is the temporal application of a treaty, as Sadia uh, mentioned initially, as opposed to what other kinds of ratione do we have, people, when we're talking about jurisdiction? Materie. And persona. Oh, nice. Uh, that was a call and response that worked for once. Uh, <laughs> and not materia e and person. Do we say that in Latin? Materia e, persona e. Masonic <laughs> Rihanna. <laughs> materie? Materiae? Materiae, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I know Michele Potesta is going to send me an email saying our Latin sucks because he always does that when we fail on this. Anywho, Ratione Temporis <laughs> is what we are focusing on today. Uh, has the BIT entered into force, essentially? Uh, and this, of course, goes back to the whole basic thing about consent to arbitration in, in investment treaty arbitration. John Paulson's arbitration without privity. We know how a consent is formed in investment treaty arbitration. The host state has to make a valid offer and the investor has to accept that offer. Do you get money every time you cite to that book, Joel? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I really should at this point. <laughs> yeah. I guess somehow, unless I'm indirect, like he's Swedish, you know, promoting the, the, the kingdom and its research. There Maybe I'll get some sort of royalty. <laughs> so where a treaty contains an arbitration clause, it can be said to contain an offer to arbitrate with that whole state. And then the investor indicates acceptance by filing a request for arbitration. 
But of course, there will be no offer and hence no consent to arbitrate if the treaty has not yet come into force at the time that the investor has filed her request for arbitration. Um, and we are not yet moving into the Mozambique case, which posed some specific questions. Uh, so we can instead start with the old classic Tradex versus Albania, very early exit case, where claimants relied on the BIT between Albania and Greece as one of the two bases for jurisdiction. And I think ultimately was heard under uh, the Albanian investment law, but they also talked about the treaty. The tribunal noted, and this is a good illustration of the basic problem here, the tribunal noted that the request for arbitration was dated 17th of October 1994, but that the BIT came into force on 4th of January 1995, so three months later. Um, and the tribunal found that jurisdiction must be established on the date of the filing of the claim and rejected the BIT as a basis for jurisdiction. And I will quote the tribunal here, chaired by Hans, no, Karl Heinz Böckstegen. This is what they said. It is therefore clear that at the time of its filing the request for arbitration, Tradex, the investor, could not rely on a jurisdiction provided by the BIT. The only question is whether, nevertheless, the later enter, entry into force of the BIT could, with delay, still be a sufficient ground to justify jurisdiction from there on for this procedure. Such a conclusion would be unusual insofar as both in national and international procedural law, jurisdiction must mostly be established at the time of filing the claim. This is not always the case, though, I think, uh, that it's the filing of the claim. The, the question, I think, under most treaties is rather, when did the dispute arise? And that is the date you have to determine. Can I start by asking, actually, I think you suggested this topic initially, Sadia. Was that out of a particular, do you have, do, either of you have any experience dealing with this kind of like objection or issue? Yeah. Yes, actually, yeah, it happens all the time, yeah. And when I saw that the reason why I, I saw this in the first place was, of course, prompted by the Mozambique case and the initial reaction, you'll talk about it, of course, is what happened there, right? But it is true that the first thing we think about is this, you know, is has the treaty entered into force or has it not entered into force and what consequences it has? Okay, okay, then uh, okay. I'll, I'll hold you here, I'll run through yeah, the basics yeah, 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 yeah. and we'll get back. I just wanted to clarify, <laughs> like, Sorry. if you guys were about to, are about to, to second guess me. So, going back to when did the dispute arise? Did it arise before or after the entry into force of the treaty? Most BITs actually state that they shall not apply to disputes that have arisen before that date. And one example, which is not a random one, it's the very frequently litigated Argentina-Spain BIT says typically, this agreement shall apply to investment made before its entry into force by investors of one party in accordance with the laws, blah, blah, blah. However, this agreement shall not apply to disputes or claims originating before its entry into force. So the treaty applies to investments made prior to the entry into force, but it does not apply to disputes prior to the entry into force. So right. then the question is, of course, when is there a dispute? Um, this was one of the key issues in the Mafizzini versus Spain case, which is usually cited for the MFN discussion, but there are a lot of nuggets in this award. In Mafizzini versus Spain, the respondent challenged the tribunal's jurisdiction claiming that the dispute originated before the entry into force of this BIT, the Argentina-Spain BIT that I just quoted. 
And the claimant relied on certain facts and events that preceded the BIT's entry into force, but argued that a dispute arises only when it is formally presented as such. So this, according to the claimant, had occurred only after the BIT's entry into force. And the tribunal then distinguished between the events giving rise to the dispute and the dispute itself, finding that the events on which the parties disagreed began years before the BIT's entry into force. But this did not mean that a legal dispute as such can be said to have existed at the time. So this distinction, I think, is what we are usually operating with at the dispute in its technical and legal sense uh, take shape after the BIT's entry into force, even if there had been various like minor aspects or even major aspects of a dispute that had not yet been formalized prior to the entry into force. I had actually, uh, I, uh, I was a secretary to a tribunal where this was uh, an issue as well. Um, in that case, there were a number of disputes which predated the BIT's entry into force which had then been subject to a settlement agreement between the state and the investor. Mm. The settlement agreement was after the BIT's entry into force. The settlement agreement allegedly was never paid by the state, so the investor then relied on the settlement agreement as an investment. And the state objected, of course, and said that, well, all of these disputes that ended up with the settlement agreement, they predate the BIT, so there is no jurisdiction at Jonathan temporis. But the tribunal then found that the settlement agreement had extinguished the previous disputes and that a new dispute was created when the state didn't pay the settlement agreement, basically. So I sort agree. of a similar fact pattern. Yeah, I think that was a reasonable outcome based on the facts here. So before moving on to this, uh, this interesting recent case, what, what, what is your experience with this? Can I ask you, by the way, do, do you, as a matter of course, do you check thoroughly? whether or not a treaty that you are relying upon has entered into force. This will make sense when we talk about the Mozambique case because there are a few errors were, were made. Um, yeah, yes, you have to. I recently saw a treaty that required some sort of, not legislation, but sort of like an approval, approval of the legislative body. And there was a lot of like government activity that needed to happen to make sure it was entered into force. So it wasn't necessarily the signatures at the bottom of the treaty, but it had to do with whether it was passed into legislation, which under the applicable law required it to be. So you really need to check beyond just scrolling to the end of the document and finding the date. Um, so yeah, I, you definitely have to make sure it's <laughs> in force. Yeah, I, I would concur with that. I mean, it's... Um very easy to just go on the website to see if it's entered into force and a lot of us just rely on that to be like oh yeah it's in force on central website says so or <laughs> <laughs> this website says so but um yes and and especially actually right now and i can't say which treaty it is for obvious reasons <laughs> but um it's it's incredible i have had no responses from either of um the states um involved in this treaty or you know i've we've been trying for weeks and weeks to figure out whether or not that treaty is actually in force i mean i think i'm pushing the inquiry too far like there's a lot of uh, you know elements that that could lead to thinking that it's it's actually in force but it's not 
what I need to know. I need to know for sure whether it's an orc <laughs> or not. And, and that's why when I saw the Mozambique case, I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly, I mean, Mozambique yeah. was just crazy, but yeah. Yeah, so, that is what you're trying to avoid, essentially, by being this yeah. diligent. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that brings us to the Mozambique case, which uh, we all noticed when it came out, and our researcher Rishi has called a comedy of errors in his research. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the background to this uh, Odek Besser Glick versus Mozambique case. Mr. Besser Glick is a South African businessman who in 2014 initiated a claim under the South Africa Mozambique BIT, which is the one that we are now concerned with. He accused two Mozambican, Mozambique, Mozambique, two state entities from Mozambique. <laughs> I love how you just kept going. <laughs> of fraudulently uh, appropriating shares and vessels and profits from a joint venture that he had with the state. And this is in 2014. In 2011, i.e. three years before Mr. Besserglick filed the request, his counsel uh, was informed by a South African government official over email that the South Africa Mozambique BIT was not in force. But this lawyer representing Mr. Besser Glick proceeded anyway to represent Mr. Besser Glick in the proceedings, vaguely stating in the arbitration that he did not recall receiving an email regarding the status of the BIT back in 2011. Here, of course, he could have either been Sadia Bati and done this much more carefully or retained an expert or a colleague to check his email records and give evidence of what was in his records if there were emails to this effect. And in the case, actually, the tribunal concluded that it is difficult for the tribunal, I'm quoting now, to conclude with any degree of certainty that Mr. Jeffries, as counsel for claimant, was unaware in December 1, uh, on December 1, probably, 2011, that the BIT was in force. So this became a factual discussion, actually, during the case, had this lawyer, in fact, been informed. Um, then... The arbitration proceeded, it was started in 2014. In 2017, three years after the case was initiated, Mozambique for the first time raised this new objection to the tribunal's jurisdiction, which is another crazy fact that it took them three years to raise the objection that the BIT was not in force. And this whole saga, as you have probably figured out now, and the listeners have too, the key question was, was the BIT in force? And no, it, it wasn't ultimately in force, it was found. Um, the ICSID website, the UNCTAD website, both stated that the BIT was in force. And this is also where, where I reporter indirectly comes in, because on the record of the case, there's a reference to an article written by Luke Eric Peterson in his pre-IA reporter days. He wrote an article where he, I think, sort of uh, en passant stated that the BIT was in force, referencing the UNCTAD records. So that was also put on the case record, like various sources basically operated on the assumption that the BIT was in force. Uh, and the investor argued that these sources and these websites, uh, quote, would not simply record that the BIT was in force without confirmation from some government or government source. <laughs> I love that. That's a good attempt. Yeah. <laughs> Swing and a miss. And then they had sort of a backup argument as well that uh, because it had been published and Mozambique had failed to correct the information on the website, that was proof that Mozambique had assumed that the BIT was in force. So some sort of uh, a preclusion argument almost. Yeah. 
Yep, but this didn't fly, as we now know, and the tribunal held the following, and if you bear with me, I'm going to read this out, because I think it makes a lot of sense to actually spend 30 seconds on understanding what the tribunal found. The tribunal said, ICSID receives information about BITs and displays that information on its website in what is what it described as a database of bilateral investment treaties. This website sets forth information for BITs, including signature date and date of entry into force, and informs users that the data therein is based on information provided by governments or found on governmental websites, and that ICSID cannot warrant its accuracy. The website thus indicates to users merely that on the basis of information received by ICSID, the treaties mentioned there may be in force. It is not an official publication of BITs in force. It creates no rights and gives rise to no obligations on the part of any of the state's parties to the BIT. A state in particular cannot claim that it was misled by inaccurate information on a publicly accessible and non-official website with respect to a BIT, which it itself had negotiated, signed, and ratified, any information on such a website is at best a secondary source, the primary source of the records of the state parties to the BIT. So lesson, check government records, not the UNCTAD or the exit websites. That is basically what you were trying to do now, Sadia. Yes, yes. And and, it's, and of course, it's, it's more difficult. You know, in certain jurisdictions, it's difficult to have access to those documents. Um, and and it, I, I think in the Mozambique case, it's interesting as well that they didn't get support from the host state. Was there, a, uh, sorry, from the home state of the investor, right? No, that's the, right. That's a, that's a curious twist to that, that the investor in this case what was, was not on the same page as his own government. Yeah. Uh, because because South, South Africa also claimed that this BIT was not enforced, which <laughs> yeah, made it a, right. a bit more complicated for the investor. <laughs> right, because if you can't get, if, if you have a treaty where you need to have notification, like in this one, you know, that, that um, a notification that it is, uh, has entered into FOS, then you would either ask, you know, records from the responding uh, state, or you would ask uh, the records from your own state, right? Right, uh, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Let, let me just halt you there because oh, then, sorry, and okay. go back to pro professor mode because this is a good point that we missed out on a little bit, I think. There is, of course, a general rule in the Vienna Convention on the Law of the Treaties, Article 24, saying that a treaty enters into force uh, in such a manner as agreed upon uh, by the states or something to that effect. So you have to go and look at the treaty in order to find out what are the rules for the treaty, this specific treaties entering into force. And in this case, there was such language in the South Africa Mozambique BIT. Um, in Article 12, it says the following, the contracting parties shall notify each other promptly when their respective constitutional requirements for entry into force of this agreement have been fulfilled. The agreement shall enter into force on the day following the date of receipt of the last notification. So this is a kind of a formalistic thing. It's not the case that the treaty enters into force when both states have gone through the constitutional requirements, it enters into force when they have done that and then notified each other that they have done that. And there was no such uh, notification on record. So even if both South Africa and Mozambique had gone through all the parliamentary song and dance to ratify the treaty, they would also have to notify each other of those procedures and then it entered into force. So it was kind of a formalistic thing, which the tribunal found that under the Vienna Convention, that's what they are bound by. Right. Uh, and of course, then, as you said, Sadia, this was all slightly complicated by the fact that also South Africa said that it had not entered into force. So it's kind of an uphill battle to fight this when both states are saying that the treaty is not in force. 
<laughs> There's really no battle. You're in like yeah. reality. <laughs> yeah. What a waste of time of everyone's time. What but Sadia, yes. did you undertake the like due diligence to consult whether it was into force because it there was some some in uncertainty that it was not into force, or you just do that every time you initiate and or are part of a no, new place? No, no, because there was some uncertainty because, uh, I mean, how can I say this without... Uh, <laughs> oh, you don't have to say it. Yeah. It's just, no, you, no, no, I, yeah, I, no, because I, I noticed that there was some uncertainty because it it doesn't it didn't mean because it was listed on the website as enforced that it meant that it was enforced for that country specifically. Right. You see right. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I just needed to make sure. Um, and yeah, and for other cases to respond to your question, like... Um, there have been times where um, I don't I don't recall any other example, but I have heard that before, that a treaty is either listed into force on the websites um, and it's not, and conversely that it's listed as not in force and it actually is. Um, <laughs> so you just have to be careful, and of course, you know all these tools are getting very they're they're mostly accurate, I would say, um, because all of us rely on them, but we. I, I've been told that before too, before this Mozambique thing. And it's actually, there are many cases when this has been raised because given the uncertainties and in, especially in many states, the lack of records, it is, it's not a bad objection to throw up there. Even if you're not necessarily convinced that it's a good, good faith objection, it sort of puts the burden on the party trying to rely on the treaty. And if there's no, like if there's a, a very formalistic rule in the treaty, which requires a lot of evidence to, to support that the treaty is in force, it, it is complicated for the party trying to rely on that. So it's actually kind of a useful objection in certain cases, depending on which the states are to the treaty. Yeah. And we, you're also right, Zariha, that this is uh, a, such a waste of time. I just wanted to, to conclude on the Mozambique case by mentioning that um, because Mozambique raised this jurisdictional objection three years into the case, which the tribunal found to be inexcusable, um, the tribunal ordered Mozambique to bear its own costs, uh, even oh. if they won the case. Then uh, the claimant, of course, had to bear its own costs because their own lawyer, if you remember, proceeded with the case despite knowing from the get-go that the bit was not in force, which is bad lawyering, frankly, yeah. uh, as it is. <laughs> no winner in this case. Don't you, I mean, I'm just thinking there, shouldn't the, I mean, I don't know, was this an exit case or uh, was it an additional it, facility rules case? Yeah, the latter, uh, an oh, exit right. AF case. Okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking if it were exit, because it, 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 just exit, wouldn't it also be good for the institution to take on that check before registering that case, just like as a... You know, prima facie like validity, yeah, admissibility point. Don't I you think know? that's not. I think they don't do that. I think that oh. is uh, regarded to be too much of a legal determination. It's such a, a high bar for exit to reject a case outright that they prefer that the tribunal does this instead because usually, you know, yeah. you have to interpret the the requirement of the BIT and then you have to look at the evidence and well, obviously, if someone relies on a treaty that like doesn't exist that all makes up a BIT or something, then maybe they would reject it at the yeah. institutional level. But I think otherwise, it's something that the tribunal should do and not the institutions. Okay, yeah. okay. is that it or any further questions from uh, from the audience? On this, <laughs> uh, no, it's it is it's uh, that's really an interesting case. I mean, that the principle comes up in in a, ton, a host of other ways. Um, 
but I think that one is in particular great because it really is the genesis of the problem. Um, yeah, you know, we had a lot of uh, Rishi did uh, excellent research for this and also added a few things on sunset clauses, which I thought was so interesting. I think maybe we should do yeah. that separately because that's like an extra 20 minutes on clauses providing for uh, the continuing survival of the treaty, even if it's terminated. That's like related right. to this, but it's especially now in the intra-EU context, it's such a live question. So I think we should probably do that uh, on its own. All right, let's put a pin in that one and move on. commercial arbitration awards serve as a basis for an investment arbitration claim or as Rishi uh, really nicely put who will watch the watchers <laughs> <laughs> I like that um, why are we talking about this topic I think this topic is interesting because it's a interaction between commercial arbitration and investment arbitration and uh, more often than not it hasn't happened a lot, but it has happened enough times that, you know, it warrants this discussion of how many times it has happened to you, I'm sure, Brian. And now maybe you'll have to face with this too, Jill, when you have a very nice, shiny award that looks kind of like a check and you want to get the money and you can't. And uh, what do you do, right? Um, and you're trying to enforce it and it's been set aside and years and years of additional proceedings after the award. And sometimes, you know, it's set aside on on grounds that, you know, it's um, okay, reasonable. Uh, but uh, sometimes it's just uh, completely outrageous. Um, I mean, has it happened to you, Brian, to be in a situation like that? Um, a No, no, it hasn't. Um, but I mean, Joel's settlement agreement sounds like somewhat similar if you get a consent yeah. award maybe from a commercial arbitration. Right. Yeah. yeah. The example that you mentioned, Joel, that was interesting that the settlement agreement served as a basis, the violation of the settlement agreement served as a basis for a BIT claim, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's similar to, to what we're talking about here is when you have a commercial arbitration award that is um, either denied enforce, enforcement by the national courts or have been set aside um, and then it's been invoked as a reason uh, for uh, launching an investment arbitration against a state. So that's the tricky thing is you have to demonstrate, right, that the uh, action of the courts um, by, you know, denying enforcement or setting aside that commercial award is actually, um, you know, the state's the liability of the state under the applicable um, investment arbitration treaty. And and when, when you know, Rishi mentioned the term, the, the expression, who will watch the watchers, it's referring to that additional role that investment arbitration tribunals therefore take uh, by becoming a supervisory supervisory jurisdiction right so they're supervising the supervision of the national courts uh, they're already supposed to supervise uh, the <laughs> award right you know, in a system where we don't want um, you know we don't want to appeal at least that's being discussed that we want to appeal now being able to appeal at least investment arbitration awards, but that's a whole different thing. Um, it, it kind of questions and challenges the understanding of the overall, um, you know, 
arch architecture of international commercial arbitration, right? Because the the whole system is that you have a final and binding award, and uh, the final word on the survival of that award is um, left to the courts um, of the seat, uh, you know, or the courts where you seek to enforce the award, correct? Right. Um, so that's that's uh, that's the problem. So when can that happen? Has it happened before? Um, I mean, without going in too much detail into this, I thought it's interesting. Of course, you know there are two um, there are two things that you need to look at. Actually, three. First, you have a BIT that's enforceable, <laughs> that's ratified. <laughs> Step <Right>? one. <laughs> Step one. Check that. Um, you know, so jurisdiction is the first point, right? So the key question here is. What is your investment? Is your investment, um, you know, the underlying rights that you get from the contract that led to the arbitration, or is the investment the award? Mm. Um, and there's been a lot of discussions about this, and um, and in fact, what appears from the cases that I'm going to refer to is is that it cannot just be the award, the commercial award, the standalone award is not sufficient to constitute like an investment. It has to be part of the overall, um, what is mentioned as the overall operation, um, you know, theory, uh, which is that the award has to be part of the operation and including the arbitration award, but also as, you know, the rights arising of the award and, um, you know, the contract that led to that commercial arbitration mm. Place. It has okay. to be something else, like culminating in the award. It can't just be an award self-standing as exactly. an investment. Exactly, exactly. And so one of the major cases that has uh, discussed this issue is the Saipam Bangladesh case. It's a couple of years ago already, but it's, I think, a really interesting case to be mentioned. Um, so it was, it concerned um, um, a Petra, Petra Bangla, which is a Bangladeshi state-owned company. Um, and Saipam and Petra Bangla entered into um, a pipeline contract. And Petro Bangla defaulted on payment, so Saipem initiated ICC arbitration in accordance with the pipeline contract. And in fact, that's interesting. What happened is that during the arbitration, Petro Bangla obtained an order from the Supreme Court of Bangladesh for revocation of the ICC tribunal's authority to adjudicate the matter. Uh, when the ICC tribunal saw this, they, of course, I mean, of course, I'm saying of course, but <laughs> um, they uh, refused to recognize this order and they stated that the ICC rules provided that a challenge to a tribunal's authority could only brought, be brought before. The courts are the place of arbitration. Well, the challenge. Or the tribunal, I guess, tribunal, initially. Yeah, or here, you know, or before the ICC, yeah, you, you know, the proceedings, the arbitral proceedings. If you're going to challenge um, the proceedings, you first have to challenge them there. Um, so Saipan prevailed in the arbitration, and Petro Bangla again approached the Supreme Court of Bangladesh at this time, and they sought to set aside the award. And surprise, surprise, the court of Bangladesh held that. Uh, in light of the tribunal's disregard of the Supreme Court's order, the award was <laughs> nullity in the eyes of law and could neither be set aside nor um, enforced. The last uh, yeah, exactly. So, um, person to the Italy Bangladesh BIT, which was in force, Saipam initiated exit arbitration claiming that Bangladesh through its courts, and that's an interesting thing, what they said 
is that they expropriated Saipem's investment, which consisted of the pipeline contract and the right to payment and the right to arbitration therein, the construction work that had been undertaken, the retention money that Saipem had provided to Petrobangla, and the ICC award. So it's this whole thing that mm. was the investment. And uh, the tribunal had that the ICC award actually did constitute an investment, and it was an exit arbitration, so they had to do the double barrel test. So through exit and through the uh, the underlying BIT. Um, and uh, I'm just going to refer to what the tribunal said because it's interesting. I quote, the tribunal wishes to emphasize that for the purpose of determining whether there is an investment under Article 25 of the Exit Convention, it will consider the entire operation. In the present case, the entire or overall operation includes the contract, the construction itself, the retention money, the warranty, and the related ICC arbitration. Um, and then it moves on to say the tribunal agrees with Bangladesh that the rights arising out of the ICC award arise only indirectly from the investment. Indeed, the opposite view uh, would mean that the award itself does constitute an investment under Article 25.1 of the Exit Convention, which the tribunal is not prepared to accept. Mm. So that's uh, that's interesting, I think, in that. Um, it has also, this, the same approach has been taken somewhat um, by others' tribunals. There's another interesting case, which is the white, introduce, uh, white, sorry, white Industries versus India case. What happened there is that White Industries um, unsuccessfully spent nine years before various Indian courts trying to enforce an ICC award rendered in its favor against Coal India. And here again, the tribunal said that um, the rights under the award constitute part of White's original investment, i.e. being a crystallization of its rights under the contract, and as such are subject to such protection as it's afforded to investments by the BIT. Um, so does that mean, I'm, like for yeah. the purposes of yeah. ratione temporis, yeah. that they would value the date of the breach at the time the award, they considered the award not to have been enforced, even though they're including the entire investment to be the operation, which could have been nine years prior. They say this is now crystallized into this investment dispute at the time that it was not enforced. That's an excellent question. <laughs> Pause just there. I will talk about this in one minute. Okay. Um, yeah, it's exactly one of the key questions that was raised because of that. So I'll tell you in a second. Um, another, I mean, the interesting thing is that there's also been another um, another case, Roma, Kazakhstan, uh, which actually illustrates the pitfalls arising from the fact that an award is a crystallization of the underlying economic transaction. One of the issues is the one that you just mentioned. So I will come to it in a minute, which is, you know, the temporal thing. What do you look at then? Do you look at the contract, you, you know, the date of the contract or the date of the award? Uh, you know, what, what is what is the, the, the temporal application then? Um, uh, one other thing is when the underlying contract or investment, I mean, well, actually, the underlying what is alleged to be an investment does not qualify as an investment. So in that case, um, what had happened is it concerned, it was a GAFTA award, and the tribunal concluded that the GAFTA award is so inextric 
inextricably sorry, linked to the Romac Supply Agreement, then any determination as to whether Romac holds an investment under the BIT cannot be made without reference to the entire economic transaction. And um, they conclude that if the underlying transaction is not an investment within the meaning of the BIT, the mere embodiment or crystallization of rights arising thereunder in, a, in an award cannot transform itself in an, into an investment. So that's also something that I think people wouldn't necessarily think about directly. But if your contract that gave rise to an arbitration award is a contract for sale of goods, for example, services, or mm -hmm. in this case, something this, we had that this, this is similar to the case that with the settlement agreement, the case that I was secretary on that I mentioned before, where the settlement agreement was found to be an investment because the definition of investment said that also other things that are not themselves investments, but that are... I don't remember the exact wording of the BIT, but that are tied to an investment or have connections to an investment, oh, wow. can, which is like a circular mm -hmm. definition. You know, like it, A thing that isn't an investment can be deemed an investment if it is tied to another thing that is an investment. Mm -hmm. But then you have to decide that other thing, whether or not that is an investment, which mm -hmm. is completely circular and you're like back to the <laughs> walking yeah, around. But it's... <laughs> Well, it's very, it's interesting because the CETA actually has uh, taken this approach in their definition of the investment, where they include the Salini criteria in their definition of the investment, but um, they exclude certain kind of contracts specifically. So, for example, sales of goods and services and the awards arising from these specific contracts. So it literally excludes Ooh. from the definition of investment um, these awards. And in fact, um, I think there's also another, it was the India, was it? Um, sorry, yes, it is. It's the Indian model BIT that has also excluded from the definition of investment, um, you know, the claims arising out of awards. And yeah, awards. no coincidence that it's India probably given. After white the white industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it is related to that, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now to respond to your question, because I... Um, you've been waiting patiently uh, on that temporal application. It, this is what has happened in the ATA Jordan, Jordan case, actually. The tribunal denied temporal jurisdiction when the claim to money in the form of an award came into being post-BIT, but the original investment was made prior to the entry into force of the BIT. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you got to be even more cautious um, in this scenario. Um, now, to just because, you know, I could go on for hours on this because I think this is fascinating. But once you've nailed on the jurisdiction thing, there's still the liability issue, right? You need to demonstrate uh. that there has been a breach of treaty protections. Um, Brian, Joel, what are the main things that come into to your mind as terms of treaty violation for this kind of behavior? Mm, denial of justice is the first thing that I'm thinking of. Or effective means if that's in the treaty. Yeah, maybe some sort of judicial expropriation thing, which is very hard. You've got, yeah. all, you've got all three. You've got all three. <laughs> we are on fire today. You are. This is it. So denial of justice is uh, part of the EFT standard, of course. Uh, is one thing. Um, effective means clause is another, and we'll I'll talk about it a little bit more 
and then judicial expropriation. Let me start by judicial expropriation because that was what had been invoked by Saipem in the Saipem Bangladesh mm. case. Um, and this is really the landmark case for, for this, um, this scenario. The reason why they did not, I think, base uh, their claim on denial of justice, which just simply was because there was no such provision under um, the existing BIT. So they had to be creative and frame it as an expropriation of rights. Because it's true, you would, you would logically, the first thing that pops in your mind is denial of justice. Here, what the tribunal considered is that the Bangladeshi Judicial Acts, as they had the effect of substantially depriving the investor of the benefit of the previous arbitral award, um, considered was were considered to be a judicial expropriation. Um, they, and I quote, uh, said that the Supreme Court's ruling is tantamount to a taking of the residual contractual rights arising from the investments as crystallized in the ICC award. Mm. I, I agree. So I don't. I, oh, because <laughs> they could still enforce it anywhere else. Like they, they, it's not that they are like taking away the award permanently, globally, universally. It's just that they they could probably still try to have it enforced like anywhere else. In theory, of course, we don't know anything about like where there where there are assets and whatnot. But it's not like it's it's valueless just because the Bangladeshi court has declared it. I love when oh. the professor in you comes back. Welcome <laughs> back, professor. This is exactly what scholars have criticized Saipem for, the lack of analysis, the lack of explanation. And they should, you know, it's been told that they should have looked at, considered whether the investor could still profit from the award by using different means. Um, you know, that's the thing, right? You can't use it anymore. Or could you? You know, maybe you could enforce Not in Bangladesh. But... I'm sorry, not in Bangladesh. Oh, yeah, elsewhere, exactly. right? Um, it was set aside, right? It wasn't denied enforcement. Um, it was uh, it was set aside, correct. But so then, tech, I mean, sure, you can enforce it, but maybe there's you know jurisdictions where you can't enforce a set aside or, but yes, um, it was limit. And there are not that many where you could actually enforce. You know, I mean, France is the first one that comes into mind, right? The Netherlands, Sweden, there are Netherlands. actually the New York Convention allows for it if if it has it been allows set aside, for it. Yes. If it has been set aside on reasons that are not valid or not reasonable, I think many quote unquote pro arbitration jurisdictions would still enforce it. But uh, then what do you do with it, right? I mean, if you, I mean, you could. That's true. It's true. But if you can demonstrate that this, the the fact that you have enforced it outside of Bangladesh. Um, in a jurisdiction doesn't lead to you lead anything you know lead to anything then then you've been deprived of your rights um, then I guess then the expropriation you know claim would work but you're absolutely right this 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 is actually what has been criticized in this IBM decision um, there's been other examples of where this has been erased but it was slightly framed differently um, the frontier versus Czech Republic case um, was one where Frontier alleged there there was a refusal to enforce the award on the grounds of public policy uh, because the award prioritized Frontier over other creditors and uh, the Czech by the Czech courts and it was considered an abuse of rights in breach of the FET protection. Um, and the tribunal held that the FET protection would be breached um, if the Czech court's refusal amounted to an abuse of rights contrary to the international principle policy of good faith. In that case, it was not considered that it was um, a breach of the abuse of rights, that there was, sorry, that there was an abuse of rights. Um, and they actually considered that the Czech courts were, you know, right in, in their determination. Um, which, you know, which, which again makes you think that you kind of have, 
it, it kind of sounds like you have a second bite of the apple, right? By going to, by launching an investment arbitration claim. So your award has been set aside and then you have another tribunal that is going to determine whether or not the setting aside right. is possible or but not. Right? It is, of course, in, in theory, but in practice, I'm guessing that most tribunals would be very reluctant to like review extensively what what a domestic court has already determined like there's got to be a pretty significant margin of appreciation there left to yeah. the domestic courts right it doesn't mean that you can't go to the tribunal but it's got to be hard it really has to be like a very like yes. obvious uh, yeah. miscarriage of justice yes the threshold is very very high and they're not going to do it that often and that's why it hasn't happened that much actually uh, but also, you know, of course, there's it depends on the jurisdiction, right? I mean, probably tribunals would be more inclined to do that where certain jurisdiction, in that case, was Bangladesh or India or any other. I'm not going to name many, uh, but there are more uh, ones where the tribunals would, would have a, a bias against, I guess, than any others. Um, and then finally, um, it has been also been raised as a violation of the effective means clause um, um, provision, which, Brian, you're absolutely right, is in certain BITs, not all of them. And it's really good that you spotted that. What is an effective means clause? Um, I'm going to give you an example. So, um, in fact, in the White Industries India case, that there was no effective means clause. So how did they... They MFNed in. Yes, they, exactly. They MFNed in. And, uh, you know, the, there could be a debate as to whether or not you could use an MFN to import such a clause. Um, and there was a debate. But in that case, it was okay to do so. So there was an effective means clause in the Kuwait India BAT and not in the Australia India BAT, which had the MFN clause. And so they brought it in. And uh, I'm going to refer to the clause here just in case some people have never heard of such clause, I'm going to quote that provision. Each contracting state shall maintain a favorable environment for investment in its territory by investors of the other contracting state that we see all the time. And then the next sentence is each contracting state shall in accordance with its applicable laws and regulations provide effective means of asserting claims and enforcing rights with respect to investments. And in this Award. It's really interesting, um, and, and Jewel, I think you'd be interested in hearing that the claim for denial of justice was dismissed, but the tribunal determined that there was a violation of the effective means clause. Hmm, at the same time. Hmm? Interesting. Well, there's different thresholds. Definitely. Yeah, I guess, because denial of justice, you also have the whole like exhaustion of local remedies thing. Exactly. You have to have gone through the whole court system, yeah. which I guess in India, in this case, it's like a, a decade-long commitment. <laughs> But they said that the India, I'm going to quote here again, the Indian judicial system's inability to deal with White's jurisdictional claim in over nine years mm. and the Supreme Court's inability to deal with White's jurisdictional appeal for over five years amounts to undue delay and constitute a breach of India's voluntarily assumed obligation of providing White with effective means of asserting claims and enforcing rights. Mm. Vol voluntarily through an MFN clause. Voluntarily. <laughs> They volunteered somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Voluntarily through an MFN clause. So, you know, um, I think there was an episode where you talked about selling, you know, awards as assets. Yeah. And, um, you know, it would be interesting. I've never seen that before, but it would be interesting to see if someone who is interested in buying an award 
is considering you know is bringing that into the mix of whether or not new proceedings you know before a tri investment arbitration tribunal could work or not um you mean buying an, a commercial award and then buying a commercial that's award. an investment yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then you have the problem. Like, does that constitute an investment if you're just like a third-party buyer who comes and swoops up an arbitral award without no other assets or investments or activities? Yes, of course, of course. But then that's that's what I'm saying. Then you couldn't. I think that you would consider that you're giving away maybe the possibility of doing that. Not sure. Or if you can step into the shoes of those who have the rights to claim under investment arbitration, um, you know, uh, tribunal interesting to see that but um but yeah i thought it was it, it was an, another role an interesting role that is actually not really usually discussed of of these uh, investment arbitration tribunals of there being the kind of the night watchers of arbitration <laughs> <laughs> well this has been great Sadia, but i want beer can we have a beer. i think it's a good time for beer actually yeah all right let's move on And finally, we will round out this nice episode. Actually, very uh, insightful, you guys. I'm going to need to borrow those notes for some of my cases. Um, we will talk about resolutions every year. Actually, my parents would make me sit around the table and say what our resolutions were. Maybe that's very American <laughs> to do. But we would go around and say what our resolutions are for the year. And also, which comes into what I'm going to talk about in this segment, whether you have fulfilled your last year's resolutions because what's a New Year's resolution without making sure that you fulfilled last year's or else you're that, gonna be... that is American. That is the American aspect. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone can promise anything when they're drunk, following <laughs> up on it a year later to see if you are like... No content. Uh, yeah. uh, well, the reason why I bring it up is because... So we're going to be talking about arbitration resolutions. So kind of what we want to make better about this year in arbitration. But before we do that, let's see what... The ICA Congress, or no, what the um, the Board of ICA actually did this in a post last year, said what their resolutions are. So Gabrielle Kaufman-Kohler said, as president of ICA, my goals for 2019 are to contribute to increasing diversity in our field and enhancing the quality and efficiency of international dispute settlements across the globe. <laughs> so I don't know if we can say that we've done that, but we've definitely tried. Um, Lucy yeah. Reed gave a more uh, descript one, and she said, my 2019 New Year's resolution is to see the new Singapore Mediation Convention signing ceremony go well on the 7th of August, with ratifications quickly to follow. That's smarter. That's a much better one. Yes, but did you, I didn't even, I hadn't followed this closely at all, um, the Singapore Mediation Convention. But it provides, I looked it up, it provides process of the direct enforcement of cross-border settlement agreements between parties resulting from mediation. The convention provides that a settlement agreement may be enforced directly by the courts of the state. Yeah, so it'll, this, you're not an OGMAN, Brian. This has been like 20% of my inbox has been seeing <laughs> a mediation convention during 2019. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, sorry, I don't have that pleasure. But, um, no, blissful ignorance. Perfect. But it was, it was signed now by uh, 46 states. So it has kind of gained, garnered momentum. So I would say that that was, um, but I think everyone should check that they were actually signed by the states by not checking <laughs> and, and contacting. How many, 
How many signatures do you need for it to be entered into force? Or has it already? It has, I that? think. It yeah, has, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. now someone's going to quote us in an arbitration. Yeah, check. We're not sure. <laughs> exactly. Check with your government. <laughs> um, we had a couple of other ones about diversity. Um, so I will skip that. Meg Kinnear talked about um, their new offices in Washington and enter the final stretch of modernizing the exit rules. So that, of course, has gone forward. Um, Juan Fernandez Ernesto, who actually had a very specific one, and he says, my hopes for 2019, very down to earth, fewer document production requests, only narrow and specific categories, please. And shorter awards, no cut and paste, please. <laughs> good. Which I think That's is actually a really one. good one. Yeah, and I think it should continue. I think document production requests have just, and Joel, you're going to see this left, right, and center in all of your arbitrations, but they are just getting voluminous. Mm -hmm. um, people are, you know, throwing in the kitchen sink just to get some sort of done. And, you know, arbitrators, I think, I think some counsel believe that the more you get in, the more chances you get of getting a higher percentage of document requests approved. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? So if you put in, if the, if the arbitrator is only going to do 20%, you might as well put in 300 requests because then you'll get more um, yeah. in numbers. And uh, cut and paste actually goes to Damien's thesis, right? Yeah. His research about awards that are copied and pasted from other awards. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So that, I thought that was a uh, good one. Um, Anke Sessler said, I wish global arbitration community a happy and prosperous new year and hope that arbitration can make the contribution to resolve disputes in a fair and economic way to enhance justice and peace worldwide. I think that's a bit, uh, tough one to achieve, but a, a definitely nice aspiration. Have you Googled like New Year's resolution plus arbitration and gone through all of this? <laughs> no, this is this is from ICA. They did this last year. They asked oh, so it's all from like ICA. I it's see. all from ICA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I will uh, stop saying this since clearly it's uh, not good enough. But I can tell you um, some, I, actually I did find something else online about resolutions that we should make to ourselves and to our um, transactional lawyers about the resolutions for your arbitration clauses. Oh. So I think everyone as a resolution should think carefully if arbitration is right for you or if it should be mediation. I think Joel wants the resolution for your arbitration clause to be carefully thinking about the seat of arbitration. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, I think arbitration clauses, people should start thinking about should there be any carve-outs mm -hmm. and whether it should be tailored to your needs. So think about whether you want to have any sort of provision on interim measures, emergency arbitration, et cetera, or if you want the simplified rules, if you have a simple contract. Mm -hmm. um, those are the ones I found to be online. And I'll tell you a couple of mine while before tossing it to you guys, if you have any resolutions. Um, I have a resolution to move to a digital age. I think that the if in the um, in the spirit of Greta Thunberg, I think that we can get rid of all the paper that is wasted in hearings and bundles and hard copies. And I know everybody likes to read a hard copy, and maybe we can do that in in the odd case. But when you go to a hearing room and you see the troves of documents that are printed out it's just and then the same amount of documents that are thrown away 24 hours later it it mm -hmm. breaks my little mm -hmm. swedish heart 
Um, another one that I have is um, arbitrators limiting pre and post hearing submissions. That's my general thing because I kills me. So Joel, please. <laughs> uh, pre hearing briefs, pre pre hearing skeletons, post hearing briefs. Two rounds of that. A couple more. Yeah, you had post post hearing briefs this year. You said yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I'm gonna post hearing brief hearing. Um, oh, that's what you had, a post-hearing, <laughs> a post-hearing brief hearing. Yeah, I had that too once. That's crazy. Yeah. That is a resolution for me, even though I can't enforce it because I'm not an arbitrator. Yeah. And then my final one is to funders cut us counsel a break. Um, they are increasingly becoming more sophisticated and increasingly asking us to do a lot of legwork um, to get things <laughs> Mm, uh, tiny, those tiny violin brought out of the case again. <laughs> yeah. poor, poor you. Poor we you. had a lot of violin playing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a classical music orchestra. <laughs> Calm down. Um, okay, so I don't know if you guys had any um, resolutions. Either. I have one that I haven't thought through, but I think Saria is more thoughtful and probably has thought about this. I mean, about the diversity thing, because we skipped about it, you know, quickly. And we, of course, everyone mentions diversity every year. I think it's been going on for too many years. Can we please stop talking about diversity as it's, can we just make it normal, <laughs> please? Can we stop having 10,000 conferences about diversity? Can we just stop? Like, do you wake up in the morning thinking, oh, it would be nice to have a street today? Or it would be nice <laughs> to breathe some air today. Should we please stop talking about equality between men and women and how we are normal? You know, we are all lawyers in the same sense that we should be appointed according to our competence and not according to our gender or the color of our skin or et cetera, et cetera. So I hope that this year a lot of people will not make it a resolution to make, you know, I, I just, oh God, it just, it just makes me angry. I just, of course, I am an advocate for diversity and, and all of this, but it's just, there's a lot of talk and a lot of violin playing and not a lot of, there's been a lot of action, but let's just turn it into action, please. That's what good. That, That's a good yeah. resolution. Yeah. Revolution. Revolution. Be, be, <laughs> the, be the solution. Don't talk about the solution. Exactly. Uh, out through the old guard. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Joel, what's your not thought through resolution? I will think this through as I speak. Uh, I will try to make arbitration sound less sexy. Oh. I am slightly annoyed, by the way. We are absolutely guilty. Maybe even exhibit A here, too. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm in London. Where are you? I'm in New York. Oh, let's meet next time we're both in Geneva and have a martini at Brian's favorite bar in Frankfurt. And uh, then we can see who can pack the bag the most efficiently for our flight moving on to Singapore. And oh, yeah, I met him last week. We were in the blah, 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 blah. I think this is killing the field. We are so obsessed with how cool we all are because we travel and we speak languages and we're sophisticated, like invincible college floating above all the domestic systems and we operate in a cool <laughs> elitist world of our own it just bugs the hell out of me usually and i'm going to try to to like not phrase it like that in order to like charm outside people or impress students or whatnot and clients and instead just try to talk about it in terms that more accurately reflect what it is i.e like boring law regulating how a dispute <laughs> over a factory is to be solved like it's it's not that sexy, although we are doing the video conferencing in the world's metropolis right now. I don't think it should be 
as sexy as we try to make it seem. I I think that's very well thought out because it's yeah. it's very true. Um, I you know even going to a conference and you're right that sentence comes out of everyone's mouth of the city they've been come from and are going to. And oh, do you know her? Oh yeah, I don't really know her, but we were on a panel together once yeah. uh, at a in, conference uh, in Sydney. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is us. Like we are these people yeah, too. So we're just shooting ourselves in the foot right now. But I, I think we, we can, we can make the change. We can be the change. <laughs> someone, to- someone asked me today. Actually, they're like, Brian, have you ever done litigation in the U.S.? And I was like, No, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> like, I'm an international <laughs> lawyer. What are you talking <laughs> about? I am a U.S. National, I will never, never litigate before you at court. That is so, so cliche. <laughs> oh, civil procedure. Get out of here. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I, I'll, I'll uh, join that resolution as well. Yeah, it's, it's very true. I, I think I noticed there's so many people and that are interested in arbitration more than any other fields because they think it's so, exactly to use your word again, sexy. Yeah, for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and also a lot of people who prefer investment arbitration over commercial arbitration for the same reason as well, for some reason. Oh, yeah, oh, I represent <laughs> sovereign states and international oh, yeah. proceedings, blah, blah, blah. That's more interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> why? <laughs> I mean, you, there could be reasons for that, but just explain <laughs> why. Um, and then and then you have a lot of people who come in and, and <laughs> I'm laughing because it happens so many times. Like all these really, really, really smart people, but they are so obsessed with this idea of they're going to be James Bonds of lawyers or Harvey Specters or something. And they arrive <laughs> to do binders and, and you know, <laughs> and it's just and sleepless nights. And they realize it's not just throwing boulder over Harvey's head and finding <laughs> making it sound so sexy um, and they quit and then they become depressed or whatever. So no, it's, it's hard work guys. And it's not, it is not uh, sexy to fly around the word. Actually it's, it's, we should be ashamed. Didn't, I think I, I read something. Who is it? Did you read this post by um, an arbitrator online recently who said we should, we are priding ourselves of traveling all around the world for arbitrations where we should be ashamed. Mm. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I guess we should be ashamed of saying, oh, yeah, we actually, I took the plane three times this year, uh, this week, sorry, for this, 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 this meeting. It's not nice. Greta wouldn't be, wouldn't be happy about that. Um, yeah. No, nor would the planet, nor is the planet. Nor is the planet. And same for the paper thing that you're mentioning. And also, can we, like, uh, there's still institution that requires that you send seven copies of all your, you know, your your pleadings and, and with all the exhibits and everything, yeah. like, what the hell is this? Why? Just I, yeah. I spent a, I spent a day this summer at a FedEx outlet printing seven copies of an award and then FedExing it across the world to the institution. It was like what? Not just my work day. It was like literally thousands of pages being flown to a different continent for no good reason at all. No legal requirement to do it. It's just like a policy. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Do you remember the bill of how much it was? It wasn't that much though, but it was like $200 or something. $250. Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. I was just looking at the, the invoice for printing and I was just, this is crazy. Why are we oh, yeah. so much? I mean, in addition to, of course, the environmental thing and all of that. And and it, I, I think, and, and of course, Jill, you'll be better off to, 
tell us if it's true or not. But I think that arbitral tribunals are, are very happy to be handed over iPads now during the hearings, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah generally. I guess it depends I like a lot it. on the arbitrator, though. You can't yeah. count on that. There's a whole spectrum oh, from okay. people who are like uh, millennial efficient to people who are less than boomer efficient. It depends on the person. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so to sum up, we have uh, less talk, more action, diversity, uh, more talk about uh, paperless and fewer flights, and less talk about how sexy arbitration is. That's our that's summary of our resolutions. Could yes. we also have an arbitration between uh, Meghan Markle and the Queen? <laughs> I would love oh to see God. that. <laughs> oh, oh, I like that. That would make the sexiness again into arbitration. Sorry, Joel. <laughs> but it would be it would be private and confidential, and the public would not be able to participate unless they like broadcast it live, like an exit case. Or if she's the state, and it could be an investor state case. Oh my uh, gosh! <laughs> what, which would make Harry the investment? <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Archie, Archie's the investment. Yeah. Archie's the investment for the future. Oh, oh my gosh! Okay. This is now the digression station. I think it's time right. to, to wrap up. All right. Follow us at the arbitration station, at, at ARP station. Email us at the arbitration station at gmail.com. And don't forget to use the offer code arbitration station for IA Reporter to get your extended free trial. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Rishi. You did an excellent research job on this Ratione Temporis special episode. And also, uh, she also did the one for the enforcement. So thank you, Rishi, for that as well for the investment arbitration cases. Thank you. Thank you.